Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. They say Christmas is about trees and ornaments, carols and heralds, sleigh bells and snowbanks. They say Christmas is about I'm dreaming of a white Christmas or I'll be home for Christmas. They say that Christmas is about all of those things. I want to suggest to you, though, that those are realities that have been picked up as Christmas has snowballed through the ages. That at the core, that is not what Christmas is about. At the core, Christmas is about longing. Longing and the fulfillment of longing. You know what it means to long, right? The dictionary tells us that to long means to have a persistent craving or desire for something special, but something that is distant or unattainable. Christmas is about longing. So a couple of weeks ago, when we spoke of the Benedictus of Zachariah and we spoke of waiting I read a piece from Rebecca Sabke, who had been the director of admissions at Dartmouth. And the piece focused on a letter that she received, a letter of recommendation that was written by a school custodian. Well, after hearing that piece, a friend of mine, someone with whom I text frequently, a gentleman by the name of Lee Venden. Some of you will know the Venden name. This is Maury's son. After that, Lee texted me another piece, a different piece, that he said, it made me think of what you read in the sermon that week. So this was a piece written by Hugh Gallagher, a young man at the time who had a longing, a yearning to study at New York University. He's working his way through the process of making application to this place that he longs to attend, and he comes across this question, 3A Essay. In order for the admission staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant, better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped to define you as a person? So here's what he wrote, Hugh Gallagher, in response to that, edited slightly for a church audience. Here's what Gallagher wrote. What has defined you? He says, I'm a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. 
I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. <laughs> Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I played bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I'm the subject of numerous, numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I've been caller number nine and have won the weekend passes. Last summer, I toured, toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles. Children, trust me. I can hurl tennis racket at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurnish an entire dining room that evening. <laughs> I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I perform several covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week, and when I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The law of physics do not apply to me. On balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, my bills are all paid. On weekends to let off steam, I participate in full contact origami. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life, but forgot to write it down. I have extraordinary four-course meals that I have made using only a muli and a toaster oven. I breed prize-winning clams. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet, I've performed open-heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. But I have not yet gone to college. <laughs> He became famous. His, world, his name became renowned around the world. They published his letter in Harper's Magazine. He appeared on NPR. He says he used it. He sent it into NYU, and he did study there, but he's not clear on whether or not that contributed to his application. He simply said, I thought it was absurd to ask a 17-year-old, what have you accomplished in life? And so that, he said, is why I wrote it. Well, that and the longing to go to NYU. We all long. We all yearn for something. I want to suggest to you that Christmas is about yearning. It may about be about those other things as well, but at the core, it's about longing. And because of that, today we zero in on an elderly man. An elderly man who is no stranger to longing. His name is Simeon. When we see him, he is walking, in, well, walking, shuffling, leaning on a cane, into the temple courts. A bit stooped, large roomy eyes, hand with a tremor. He, he, he scans 
the temple grounds because he's received a message he's been told he'll be here today he has come seeking at the behest of the Holy Spirit in his heart and life and then finally he spies them that little family with that tiny baby he moves in their direction as rapidly as he can he bursts into their world as much as an elderly man can burst into anyone's world with the request May I hold him? May I hold him? Taking the baby in his arms, he begins to pray. The first two words of his prayer have become, become known in church history as the nunc dimittis. Those are not the first two words in the original Greek. In the original Greek, the first two words are not nunc dimittis, they are nun apulies, the Greek term. We have known them as the nunc dimittis for many centuries of church history. Translated into English, now dismiss. Now dismiss. Sometimes experiences are so overwhelming, so important, so special, so threatening, or so joyful that we can only utter a prayer a word or two long. It's what caused the writer Anne Lamott to say, the two most important prayers in my life are just one or two words long, and I have said them over and over again. Please, 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 and thank you, thank you, thank you. Sometimes that's all we can muster. And he says, nuke Demetrius." Now dismiss. It's the fifth and the final prayer of the Advent season. In the spirit of Anne Lamott, in the spirit of capturing those deep and profound moving experiences of our lives, just briefly, we've been seeking to do that with each of the five prayers of the Advent season. That first prayer, the prayer of Mary, the fiat mihi, her answer to God's will you in her life is one word long, yes. The next prayer, her Magnificat, is her one-word answer as she realizes the overwhelming reality of what is going to happen to her, me. And then Zachariah, as he contemplates not only the birth of the Messiah, but the birth of his own child and the history-altering nature of the life that he will live. The weight that he has experienced finally comes to an end, and that becomes the one word, prayer, finally. And then last week, the Gloria in excelsis. The angels over the hills, sides of Bethlehem, singing, praying, Gloria in excelsis, together, heaven and earth together, high and low together, divinity and humanity together, God and people together. And then finally, we come today to the Nunc Dimittis. Back to Luke's gospel because that's where we've been throughout this series, Luke chapter 2. We come to the final of these prayers in the temple courts. This is the only one of the prayers except for the angel chorus, the only one of the human prayers that is spoken in public. So Luke chapter 2, we start reading in verse 22. It says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The New Dimittis, now dismiss. The New International Version in the English transposes two of the phrases so that the prayer actually begins with the words, Sovereign Lord. That appears at the beginning of the prayer. Not so in the Greek manuscripts. In the Greek manuscripts, the first two words are now dismiss. In other words, as Simeon takes this baby in his arms, as he holds this child that has been the focus of his yearning, the object of his longing, the first two words out of his mouth are now dismiss. In other words, I have fulfilled the purpose of my life. I have now seen it all. I have seen God's word fulfilled. I have witnessed the coming of the Messiah. I have held the Messiah in my arms. There is nothing else required in my life. Now I can die. Now dismiss your servant in peace, sovereign Lord. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Remember the meaning of that word, longing. To long is to crave or desire something deeply and persistently, something that is way in the future or just out of reach. Simeon and his people had craved, had longed for centuries, for millennia for this moment. Simeon had known that longing all of his life. It was beyond his ability to control, beyond his ability to create. It depended on God. So Simeon prays, and Simeon longs. Now, out of this passage, we could point out any number of things that would be relevant to us today. We might point out, for example, that the passage giving this as Jesus' way of life is the sufficient fast passage for any child dedication at any moment in time. If we had no other passage about child dedications than this one, it would be enough. If Jesus was dedicated, then I want my babies dedicated. We could talk about that. Or we could talk about the fact that the passage underlines waiting. Just as was true with Zechariah in the Benedictus. Simeon has been waiting. We could talk about our waiting experience. 
Or we could even spend time, as one New Testament commentary points out, we could even spend time noting that this is the first instance in the Gospel of Luke where we get a hint, where we get a clue that the, that, that, that the mission of the Messiah is going to exceed the boundaries of Judaism and will include the Gentiles. We ought to be very grateful for that. We would not be here were it not for that. We could spend time with all of those realities. But they're not the ones on which I wish to focus today. Rather than that, I would like to notice that in four verses, between verse 25 and 28, as it describes Simeon and his experience of waiting, as it describes his life, three times it refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on him, verse 25. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 26. Moved by the Spirit, verse 27. Every step along the way, Simeon is filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit guides him. The Spirit inspires him. The Spirit moves him. That's a key reality to recognize for one simple reason. The fact that longing and yearning does something to us. It changes us to yearn and to long for something that is beyond our grasp. Changes us. If we're left to ourselves, if we're left alone to, learn, to yearn and to long for something that we cannot accomplish that is always just beyond our reach, it has the tendency to turn us bitter and sour and angry. Those unfulfilled expectations, those unrealized hopes turn in us to acid. Jesus had the wisdom not to ask for my counsel on the Sermon on the Mount and its Beatitudes. But had he done so, I would have said, Jesus, maybe think about adding one more Beatitude, just one. What's that? I would say, Jesus, how would you feel about saying, blessed is the one of few expectations, for that one will be pleasantly surprised. Our expectations tend to set us up for bitterness and for anger, so much so that one person I know says expectations are nothing more than invitations, invitations to anger and disappointment because they're so seldom realized. I've noticed that in the premarital counseling I've been privileged to do over the years. I've noticed that when asking a couple premaritally, Tell me what you wrestle with, what you struggle with, what's causing you difficulty. It can be a real challenge to name those things. I actually, years ago, had one soon-to-be bride say to me, well, I think one of the struggles that we have is that one of us doesn't do so well with their anger. 
one of us? Which one of us? You or him? There's this great reticence to say, to say what it is. But I'll tell you what else I've learned. Talk to that same couple six months after marriage, one year after marriage, they have no problem. No problem at all saying what the problem is. He's got a problem with his anger. She won't do... And then it all comes out. Why? Because now the expectations have been disappointed. And it does something to us. And so the question for us is, as we yearn, as we long for something that God says can be ours, and that is not realized yet. What does it do to us? What kind of people do we become? For Simeon, it's clear that his life was guided, guarded. His growth happened through the Holy Spirit. So though Simeon had lived apparently decades of life to the point where he was right on the lip of eternity, he was yet filled with hope as he longed, as he yearned for the consolation of Israel. So much so that when he came to that moment of holding the child in his arms, he could say, Nunc dimittis, now dismiss. I have realized what God promised would come. And so my question is, is there a one-word summary of this prayer? A one-word summary that captures the experience not only of Simeon, but can capture our experience in similar situations in life. And I think there is. Because this prayer is about the moment when God fulfills his word. This prayer is about the experience that comes in the baby when God says, this is the one, Simeon. Go to the temple courts. You will see him there. So couldn't we say that the one word summary is fulfilled? Fulfilled. Fulfilled, bolded, italicized, underlined, exclamation point. Fulfilled. God has fulfilled his word. And friends, isn't that where we are this Christmas? Yearning to be able to pray that prayer in a world that is riven by strife, on a planet where COVID still stalks, in a life where death still reigns supreme? Isn't that our yearning? To be able to say, fulfilled. God's word is fulfilled in our lives. Simeon was yearning for the coming, the first coming. We yearn for the coming, the second coming. Don't we yearn to say, fulfilled to that promise? That day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and we can say, fulfilled. The day when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, don't we yearn to say, fulfilled? That day when Jesus says, welcome home, children. This is the place I've prepared for you. Don't we yearn to say, fulfilled? 
That day when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. And we say, fulfilled. God has fulfilled his word. But we sit. We wait. We yearn. We long. And my question is, what does that experience do to us? Do we remain people of robust hope? Even when the sun begins to set on this planet, when we curl our toes over the edge of eternity and we feel its cold blast in our face and yet still we have not been able to say, fulfilled. What does that do to us? Unrealized expectations, unmet hopes, unfulfilled dreams. What kind of people do we become? Simeon remained a person of hope because he was a person filled with the Spirit. It's our question, friends. It's so easy to cast aside our hope, to give up our dreams, to live out the reality of the bumper sticker I saw that said, I feel so much better once I gave up hope. It's true because we no longer experience the pain and the anger of unrealized expectations. So what kind of people will we be? You remember the song, but until then, does the song describe who we are? Will we walk in the footsteps of Simeon? But until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy, I'll carry on. Until the day my eyes behold the city. Does that describe us? Eugene Peterson wrote a story. It's been some years ago now. It was a story of something that happened to him in his youth as he studied for ministry. Story about a man named Willie Osa. I want you to listen to Peterson's words as he described what happened. Willie Osa was an artist who worked as a janitor at night in a church on New York's west side to support his wife and infant daughter. During the day he painted German by birth, Willie grew up during World War II and then married an American girl, the daughter of an officer in the occupying army. I got to know Willie when I was a theological student working at the same church as an assistant pastor. Willie liked to talk about religion. I liked to talk about art. We became friends. We got along well together and had long conversations he decided to paint my portrait. I went to his house on West 92nd Street a couple of afternoons a week on my way to work at the church and sat for 30 minutes or so for my portrait. Day after day, 
Week after week, I sat while he painted. He never permitted me to see what he was painting. One day his wife came into the room and looked at the portrait now nearing completion and exclaimed in outrage in German, cranked, sick, sick. I knew just enough German to know what she was saying. Sick, you paint him to look like a corpse. He answered, he's not sick. That is just the way he will look when the compassion is gone when the mercy gets squeezed out of him. A few half-understood phrases were enough for me to guess correctly without seeing the portrait, what Willie was doing. We had often argued late into the night about the Christian faith. He hated the church. He thought Christians were hypocrites, all of them. He made a partial exception for me for friendship's sake. The Christians he had known had all collaborated with and blessed the Nazis. The Christians he had known were responsible for the death camps and the cremation of six million Jews. The Christians he had known had turned his beloved Germany into a pagan war machine. The word Christian was associated in Willie's mind and experience with the state church Christians who had been baptized and took communion and played Mozart all the while they led the nation into atrocities on a scale larger than anything the world had ever seen. His argument was that the church squeezed the spirit and morality out of persons and reduced them to function in a bureaucracy where labels took the place of faces and rules took precedence over relationships. I would argue the other side. He would become vehement. Willie's English was adequate but not fluent. When he got excited, he spoke German. But there's no mercy in the church. Kinda nada. No compassion. He told me that I must never become a pastor. If I became a pastor, in 20 years I would be nothing but a hollow-eyed clerk, good for nothing but desk work. That was what he was painting by day without my knowing it. A prophetic warning. A portrait not of what I was right then, but of what he was sure I would become if I persisted in the Christian way. I have the portrait. I keep it in a closet and take it out and look at it from time to time. The eyes are flat and empty. The face is gaunt and unhealthy. I was never convinced that what he painted was certain to happen. If I had been, I would not have become a pastor. But I knew it was possible. Hmm. I knew that before I met Willie I knew it from reading Scripture and from looking around me. But his artistic imagination created a portrait that was far more vivid than any verbal warning. The artist has eyes to connect the visible and the invisible and the skill to show us complete what we are in our inattentive distraction we see only in bits and pieces. 
So I take that portrait out of the closet. I look at that portrait. And then I look in the mirror and compare. Obviously, the key to the story is what the church, what God's people do in times of evil. That we must ever pray for the courage to stand for the right though the heavens fall. But the subtext to the story is that life and waiting and longing and yearning changes us. Christmas is about longing, yearning. Simeon, when he sees the fulfillment of his yearning says now I can die we have yet to see our longing fulfilled so Christmas calls us to ask the question how are we being changed what is happening to us when our expectations linger just beyond the horizon. And whom do we see when we gaze into the mirror? Do we see Willios's specter gazing back at us? Or when we look in the mirror, do we see Simeon, old from longing, but filled with hope? Gracious God, we long, we yearn for Bethlehem's babe to become the king of the kingdom. But we still long and we still wait. Fill us with your spirit that we might be people of hope this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.